right, all right. Welcome to the Cavish Ships Podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk, shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. The Cavish Ships Podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is a trusted defense and technologies partner and the largest aggregator of U.S. Department of Defense cyber data. HII, delivering hard stuff done right. Coming up. Accurately analyzing the U.S. Navy's spending habits is a daunting task, but we're going to hear from perhaps the primary practitioner of that art, Dr. Eric Labs of the Congressional Budget Office, who will break down for us how well the Navy manages its budget. But first, a look at this week's Naval News. The Chinese balloon continued to dominate defense discussions this week, even as the U.S. Navy and Coast Guard teamed up to recover debris from the downed balloon off the coast of Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. The amphibious ship Carter Hall took station near the debris field within a day or so after the balloon was shot down on February 4th by an F-22 Raptor fighter. Carter Hall was joined briefly by the cruiser Philippine Sea and destroyer Oscar Austin, but the warships left by February 6th. The Navy survey ship USNS Pathfinder mapped the ocean bottom around the crash site as sailors from Explosive Ordnance Disposal Group 2 carried out initial recovery of the balloon's wreckage. With the Coast Guard providing security, the chartered vessel HOS Rosebud arrived on the scene late February 9th to take aboard any larger pieces of debris. With the HOS Rosebud's arrival, Carter Hall left the operation. The Russian news agency TASS reported on February 7th that the last Project 941 Typhoon-class ballistic missile submarine, the the Dmitry Donskoy, has been decommissioned. Donskoy was the oldest of the six typhoons placed in service, having been commissioned in 1981, and more recently modified for use as the test ship for the new Bulova-M ballistic missile installed on next-generation Project 995 Bore-class submarines. The Typhoon submarines, known by the Russian Navy as the Akula-class, are the largest submarines ever built, displacing more than 23,000 tons on the surface and more than 30,000 tons submerged. They were powered by two reactors and featured a unique design that had two side-by-side pressure hulls with with 20 missile launch tubes placed between them. The submarines were made famous by the novel and movie Hunt for Red October, starring the fictional Typhoon-class submarine of that name. A ceremony was held February 9th at BAE's shipyard at Barrow-in-Furness, England, to mark the start of fabrication of the nuclear submarine Warspit, the third ship in the new Dreadnought-class of ballistic missile submarines for the British Royal Navy. Two other submarines in the class, Dreadnought and Valiant, already are under construction. In France, the assault ship Dixmude and frigate Lafayette left Toulon February 8th to begin the French Navy's annual Jean d'Arc round-the-world training cruise. The ships are expected to return to Toulon in July, and the French carrier Charles de Gaulle, which has been operating in the Indian Ocean region since just before Christmas, was reported to be passing northbound through the Suez Canal on February 10th in the last stages of her Operation Clemenceau strike group deployment. In Latin America, Brazil scuttled the decommissioned aircraft carrier Sao Paulo February 3rd off the Brazilian coast in water more than 16,000 feet deep. While environmentalists decried the ship's sinking, the Sao Paulo was reportedly full of asbestos and no country was willing to let it dock for the asbestos to be removed. 
And that's a look at just some of this week's Naval News. Well, our guest today is one of the most respected naval analysts in Washington, the senior analyst for naval forces and weapons at the Congressional Budget Office, Eric Labs. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Labs. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate the invitation to come and talk with you today. We are very excited to have you here. Along with Ron O'Rourke of the Congressional Research Service, Eric testifies frequently to Congress, offering his analysis of the U.S. Navy's budget, as well as shipbuilding programs and force structure. Eric, before we get into specifics, I think a lot of folks are often confused as to the respective roles you and Ron O'Rourke play. How do you view your appearances? What's the difference between the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, your organization, and Ron's group, the CRS, Congressional Research Service? Well, both the CRS and and CBO, as well as GAO, are congressional support agencies. We work for the Congress. We are legislative. We are part of the legislative branch of the government. The role of CBO uh, writ large is that we provide cost estimates on bills, we provide financial analysis to the to the Congress, budget analysis, and so forth. I work for what what is called the program division, so I work in the National Security Division. My job isn't so much putting an estimate on a cost of a particular bill. My job is to sort of do research analysis, uh, for, you know, for the Congress or anybody else who who might be interested in it. Um, uh, and, and t- you know, takes an interest in the work that I do. CRS is part of the Library of Congress. They kind of have a broader writ. It's a larger organization. They they are subject to sort of answering, uh, you know, any sort of inquiry from a member of Congress or their staff and all that. My organization, however, at least my division, when I do a a report, that has to come at the request of a of a of a chairman of a committee, a ranking member of a committee, or a member of the leadership. So um, we overlap, but we don't do exactly the same sort of stuff. I try to focus a little bit more on uh, financial and force structure stuff. Uh, Ron's portfolio will be uh, larger that he could be forced to talk about any particular naval naval issue that might come up or or require answering. So you've been at this for quite a while, I think since about the mid nineties. That's right. Um, So you've got a pretty long view, you know, folks like you are here year in, year out, presidential administration in, presidential administration out, Congress in, Congress out, party in, party out. You see the continuity of it all. And often, and usually far more, certainly at this point, than the folks in the big high back chairs that are, that are looking down on you. Um, over that time, something approaching 30 years, regarding the Navy's ability to really accurately estimate what it needs, what sort of trends have you seen over this time? I'm not sure I know how to answer that question. Trends in, in reference to sort of, you know, you know, shipbuilding trends, or are you sort of more? Do they, do they get better at, at estimating? Do they get worse? Is it, is there, is it a sine wave? Is it a constant? Um, is, it, is it sort of like this is the season for this sort of silliness? I, I do I do feel like that the Navy is is getting better at cost estimating over the last say five to ten years and say than they were back in say the 2000s or, or earlier than that. Um, the improvements that are coming, I think, comes in part from um, they, they've had to sort of, you know, consume a certain amount of humble pie because there were there were a lot of uh, poor estimations made with the Ford class carrier, the, the Zumwalt DDG 1000, the LCS. I think that has led them to sort of relook and take a harder look at their at their processes and sort of improve their estimating. The Navy is very good at estimating the cost of a recurring ship. So if they've got a ship in production, 
they know what that ship is going to cost. They know what the next one is going to cost and so forth. The trouble comes when you come, when you start developing uh, new ship programs and you have to come up with a new lead ship cost for an entirely new program. There, the Navy runs into trouble and there's a prospect that they could, you know, run in some trouble again as they start developing some new lead ship programs over the next decade. I'm happy to elaborate on that as you see fit, but. Well, well as I was going to do that later, but let's, let's do it now. Okay. So uh, obviously the, the big new program is the frigate, the Constellation right. Class FFG-62 frigate. Uh, production of that first ship just began last summer up at Fincantieri Marinette Marine. This is the major new surface combatant program for the, for the foreseeable future until the DDGX destroyer shows up sometime in the 30s. There's a lot of expectation about it. People, people want to accelerate production of this. They want to add it. Congress wants to add another second shipyard pretty soon. Um, but all these programs have great pressures. There are enormous pressures for the service, the Navy, the Pentagon, all of them to underestimate these things because they'll never get, if they're honest about it, they won't get the money. Whatever you ask for, Congress has, comes back and says, do it for less. So then they underestimate and then shock, 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 they're, they're over cost. So right. where, do you, where do you see the frigate program with that? And that's, I mean, there's, a, there's a lot of pressure on that program to stick to cost right now. Where right. do you see that right now? Well, let me start a little bit with a little bit of the history from that 2000s period where you where we're talking about Ford and, and, and DDG-1000, Zumwalt and LCS. The, the Navy's process in those days, for whatever reason, whether it was because of a, a series of optimistic assumptions they made as they developed the, uh, the the design of the program, or whether it's precious to sort of you know always you know keep it low so Congress approves it, it led to some peculiar results. So, like for example, I've got a slide in my office that shows the Ford the, the, the Navy arguing that the Ford the first Ford class ship would be cheaper than a Nimitz repeat or that the DDG-1000 uh, or the, DD, the DDX, I think it was called in those days at that time, was going to be cost almost the same as the DDG-51, even though it was going to be about 50% bigger. So you had those peculiar results that were coming out. What I worry about now as we move into the, the, the frigate program and especially the DDGX and the SSNX is that the Navy runs a risk of doing the same sort of thing. So let's take the frigate program. The, the Navy did that as a part of a competition, a full-up competition among first five, then four shipyards. It's been a really long time since the Navy, Navy was been able to have a, a full-up competition for a major shipbuilding program like that. And they ended up with some prices that are very good. They've signed this contract with Fincantieri that, uh, you know, a fixed price contract with, you know, with one ship and then options that... Um, are very good prices. I mean, so good that that if those prices are realized and if they are the true cost of the ship, it will be the cheapest surface combatant the Navy has built by weight over the last 50 years. And that's very impressive since it's going to be an Aegis-capable ship. So it'd be cheaper by weight than a Coast Guard cutter, cheaper by weight than the LCSs were, even once they got past their, their first troubled ships. And so that makes me think that those that those that program for Fincanti area is a loss leader for them, that they are they are. They are underbidding the prices of those ships so that they can get into the program, get into the Navy business, and then um, they will have a train of business that comes in the future. So that's going to be an issue, though, but if you go to the second yard, it's one thing for Fincantieri, who sees this as a long-term project, serious production. They'll take the loss on the early ships. They'll, they'll make it back when they get into serious production and they understand the cost much more. But there's a lot of pressure to add a second shipyard. There's a lot of eagerness among shipbuilders to bid for that, to be that second shipyard. They're not going to do it at a loss. Right. They're, they're not going to take that. 
So how how is that going to factor in? I mean, this this is sort of reality colliding with a lot of things here. Well, I think there's I think you're you're absolutely right that whoever the second builder is, assuming a second builder occurs, um, is going to uh, not be interested in taking the ship at a loss. So it is going to cost more. And you, you, they might be able to massage that by saying, well, okay, it's a you know, second builder, they're starting their, their, their lead ship, their costs are gonna be a little bit higher. But it's also gonna still, I think, affect Fincantieri because if they're, they're gonna bid for the second round of ships after the first 10 as well, you know, there's gonna be, the Navy wants to build a lot more of these frigates, even with a second yard, the Fincantieri has got a reasonable expectation of buying more after those first 10 are built. I think you'll see, you know, some cost adjustments in their bids at, you know, at that time. How do we get here, uh, Eric, every, every time? Um, it, I mean, it very much feels like from somebody that watched the inside discussions in the Navy and then would um, see the, uh, I guess, dichotomy and testimony between Navy uh, acquisition folks and, you know, sort of you and, and Ron O'Rourke. How do we get to Lucy pulling the football away every time, right? I mean, that, that's what it feels like to me. That's the mental image. The Navy prices these platforms low. Um, then we run into either that they change the design or something changes in industry. Is there blame to go around or is it nefarious behavior? I, I don't think it's that. But I mean, where, where does this friction come from? I, I think you're talking about the sort of low costs and then higher costs. And when you say about the, the football, is that what you what you mean? Yes. I mean, we just don't seem to be able to do this. We collectively, right. you know, the entire ecosystem seems to fall into this trap every time. And so you, your reports read very similarly, um, you know, and not, not to take anything away from your work, but I mean, it's kind of the same thing. At some point, you feel like you need to fix this. Right. You know, there, I, I have a running, a running sort of joke uh, that I use with people that sometimes I feel like my my career is just one long running statement of the obvious. And um, uh, it, it, to, to answer your question more directly, the, all those things that you said, it's actually all of those things. So like there's, the, there's just the perennial nature of human beings to be optimistic, you know, this time it will be better, this time will be different, this time, we, you know, we've learned these lessons, and so sort of we're going to fix it. Um, other times, other times, frankly, there is sometimes what looks like to be nefarious activity on, on, on you know, going on. And by nefarious, I mean that some we have seen some Navy budget documents back from the 2000s that came up that were, frankly, just not truthful in the estimates that they were putting in there. They knew them not to be true, and they put them in there, uh, you know, a, a couple of times. So that has happened. Um, and then there's just what I say is what I mentioned earlier is that as as the Navy gets deeper in, into its design and it has to start doing all the detailed, it does the detailed work, the detailed cost estimating relationships, the detailed estimates for materials and costs. I think what happens there is that, you know, optimistic assumptions start to creep in and the little ones, you know, over and over again. And the accumulation of those little optimistic assumptions uh, end up with a, a, a cost estimate that is not what I think to be, you know, in line with what we should see historically. It's like, you know, when, when, I said that the Navy is very good at the at the estimated cost of recurring ships, but when when we start when they do these estimates for the new ship classes, and at the end when they've come up, okay, here's what we think the estimate is going to be, and if they look at that estimate and it looks like it is cheaper than the cheaper by weight at least or cheaper outright than the previous generation of ships being, and if it's more capable, um, they need to stop, they need to think, and they need to ask themselves, well, why? Why do I really believe this? And then, you know, your answer should be no, 
I don't believe this and go back to the drawing board. And that's not what happens. Too many times the Navy answer is yes, I believe this. And it's not clear why we have to learn that lesson over and over again. We largely talk about cost overruns or difference in dollars between what the Navy views and what um, CBO uh, or you know other outside groups look at. Have you given thought to time? Is that something as you've been doing this, um, you, you know, there's this idea now that is as competition returns and is it competition potentially turns into conflict that time may be as much of a commodity as dollars. And I, I know maybe the Congress doesn't think about that, but where does time fit into the analysis that, that you do um, on the Navy's plans? Well, when I do analysis on the, on the Navy's plans, time comes into, into play in sort of the cost estimating procedures that I use, which is not what you're asking about. Let me get to what you're asking about in a second. So the one thing, clarification, I should say, so like sometimes there's different estimates that I make compared to the Navy, what a particular size of a given ship might be. But also there's the way I treat inflation is important. And this is where time comes into play, is that I do my estimates in constant dollars, you know, real dollars. That, that is, it's been adjusted for inflation. And the Navy, shipbuilding has had historically higher inflation than the economy as a whole. And I treat the difference between that shipwide, that shipwide um, inflation and the economy-wide inflation as real growth on ships. So the cost of the ships and my estimates you know, grow over time. To get to your point about the different way of sort of thinking about time in the Navy shipbuilding plan is that everybody wants to do things, you know, you know, you know, fast and cheap and, 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 and good. And it's really hard to have all three of those at the same time. You can get two, you know, it's kind of like the iron tri triangle of costs. You can, you can get it fast, but you aren't going to get it cheap if that's the case. So if you need it fast, you have to be prepared to expect to pay, to pay a penalty for that, to pay a price for that. Um, and that doesn't necessarily guarantee you that it's going to be good. If you want it to be, you know, good, well, then you, you, you need to slow it down. Um, it doesn't mean it's going to be cheap. So in, the, in an era of great power competition, yeah, you're going, to, you're going to need to start factoring that in is that maybe good enough is also something. If you can get an 80% solution, say twice as fast as your 100% solution, that's going to be something that the Navy and the Congress are going to have to consider as being a viable option because you are in a period of competition that is moving very fast. China is moving very fast and we need to be able to be in a position to um, uh, respond to that in a variety of ways. It hasn't been that long since you were for, so, so let's talk fleet size, fleet plans. And you know what, what's in the fit up the future of defense plan which is what six years this year and five, um, and the thirty-year plan, which looks thirty years out. Um, you you were writing not very long ago that the Navy to, to reach its three hundred pick your three hundred XX three XX fleet three seventeen three eleven three thirty three fifty the Navy would start to have to spend. A good bit more annually on shipbuilding than it's doing whatever whatever the day was at the time. Right. And and it wasn't long ago where you were talking about mid twenties, and and making the point that you have to start spending twenty five billion dollars a year next year, not just this year, but every year after that over the life of the plan, thirty years, every every right. single year. Well, all of a sudden the Navy actually is requesting that much money. Uh, the, the last budget, um, the, the the 23 budget, they asked for 20, what, 27 and a half. And they, and they got, and Congress plussed it up five. They got 32, 32. You weren't even talking about 32, not that long ago. 
there seems to be a pretty broad appetite in Congress, bipartisan, bicameral, to support that level of, of, of production. It doesn't seem to be coming from the Pentagon yet, but we'll wait to see what happens in the, in the, in the budget, which I, so, which I hear now is hopefully coming out next month in March. But do you think that's possible? Is, 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 is your new number that you've got to spend every year was 20 something, pick your year. Now it's, is it 30 something? Is it, is 40 in your forecast? What do you what do you think? Is it even possible? I I, I do think it's possible, um, and, and you're absolutely right that the that if you had looked at sort of the work that I was doing a decade ago, we were talking about the Navy having to double the size of their shipbuilding budgets for a sustained period of time. Well, the Congress has been very supportive of shipbuilding over the past decade, even through the era of the Budget Control Act. You know, each year the administration, almost every year of the last ten years, the administration requests higher shipbuilding budgets than had, they had in the previous year. So there was a recognition on in, in in the building that they did need to spend more on shipbuilding. And then Congress each and every year would plus up that number um, every year, I think, except for one year or the, or the plus up was so small that one year. So the average of like three billion dollars over the last five years higher than what the administration requested. So now we're in the park where the Navy shipbuilding plans, based on the, the estimates that I've done, require somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 to 32 billion dollars a year on average. And that's where the Navy has been in terms of their shipbuilding budgets with the help of the Congress over the last two to three years. So we're no longer in a situation where budgets have to double if they can now sustain them, then there's a real possibility that the Navy can implement its shipbuilding plan. But as you point out, this is something that's going to have to occur for every year for the next 30 years. And in somewhere in some years, there might be a spike here and there that shoots that up into the mid 30s or near 40. There'll be other years where it goes lesser because of that's kind of the choppy nature of shipbuilding. But any way you look at it, they have to sustain that for a 30 year period. And that is kind of unprecedented in, po in post World War II history. You had very large spikes during the building of 41 for freedom. You had large spikes during the Reagan administration. But for 30 years, that's that is still that is still a, a, a new challenge. So the impact of Columbia, the, the uh, new ballistic missile submarine program, this is a huge program. Yes. There were, there were efforts some years ago, which you're totally familiar with, to try to get that, the funding for that, which is not really a naval requirement, it's a national strategic requirement, try to get it out of the shipbuilding program. That, that, that failed, so that's all being eaten up in it. And that's, that is, is one factor that accounts for that large rise. Correct. Um, in real spending, let's, let's, talk, let's talk about that. Real fleet spending. Are we looking at a? Is it is is it is it kind of a false thirty-two billion a year? Is it a real thirty-two billion a year? What do you think? No, that's uh, if if by real you mean like they're going to have to spend that much money to actually be buying ships. That's a that's a real number. That's a real inflation-adjusted number that they've got to spend to 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 build a fleet of of anywhere anywhere north of 300 ships that they want to build. I, I'm going to get you out on this. Um, we talked to Sam Tangretti last week that talked, we talked about fleet size and fleet on fleet. And you touch a little bit uh, um, on this in the um, your report that you put out in November an analysis of Navy's fiscal year 2023 shipbuilding plan. You talk about measures of capability. If we can do it in you know a minute or two, Sure. Is looking at hulls the right way to do this? I mean, part of me says maybe yes, because you, you can't build half a ship and, and, you know, that may be the best unit. But 
how do we get beyond just halls when we look at capability? And is there a better way to measure in terms of cost or in terms of capability as we move forward, um, you know, to make sure we're getting the most bang, uh, no pun intended, but also the most buck um, out of the plans that we send over? Yeah. Measuring capability is one of those issues that I have been wrestling with you know, my entire career, you know, what's the best, most effective way to sort of measure naval capability, simply citing a top line number of say 355 or pick whatever number you want, without any context to that number is actually not very helpful, because you could buy 350, you know, um, LCSs, and that isn't going to get you anywhere near the kind of fleet that the Navy says that they need. So I think of the top line number, at least when the Navy uses it, and a lot of people use it, what they are implying is sort of what is the composition of that fleet underneath there? There is different categories of ships, numbers of submarines, numbers of aircraft carriers, and so on, that that is sort of all representing. So any top line number has to have that context. Well, what is that top line number being you know composed of? But that doesn't get to answer the question of how does that measure capability? Because that's not a that's not a capability measure. You don't know anything by by just simply hearing that number. And what I've done in various reports, um, including that one in, in November, is to try to give you some other ways of measuring fleet capability, counting the number of missile cells, counting the number of ships that carry uh, and can launch land attack or anti-ship missiles. Those are those are measures of capability that I think are relevant um, sorties. The Navy, for the first time in their shipbuilding plan in November, the one that I analyzed and based that report on, for the first time, they included some measures of capability in that report because they too recognize that they're trying to get away from just you know a total ship count number because that is not revealing enough. The best and truest ways probably that we have available to us to measure naval capability is the classified work that the Navy does inside the building that looks at war games and campaign analysis and takes into a lot of you know, classified information about what might be truly available and where it might operate and so forth. I can't do that. I can't use that information in an unclassified report. So uh, I'm stuck with using various different kinds of counts of, of, of capability to try and get a sense of, of, of what your trade-offs are. So before we go, the, 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 the next new ship program that may pop up is the light amphibious warfare vessel. This is a Marine Corps, small Marine Corps ship that uh, current Commandant, Commandant Berger wants very much. Uh, they have a requirement for 35. Their Navy says we'll buy 18. Uh, they're looking to, looking to buy the first one in 2025. So we're going to see some money for that if it's a real program in this upcoming budget in the FY24. We've got to see money for that. Um, the last I heard, and that's the Navy's not been putting out a timely information on these things. Uh, the average is, is like a, a high end of $150 million for one of those ships. You think the U.S. Navy can build any ship for $150 million? Um, well, again, it, it depends on it, it depends on what they do, what depends on that initial design. It depends if they leave that initial design alone. You certainly can. There are one hundred and fifty million dollar ships that are out there and they can be built for one hundred and fifty million dollars. But will the Navy leave that alone? Will they will they first of all, they design a ship that's a, that costs one hundred and fifty million. And then once they actually sort of start get the program going. Will they then leave it alone or will they sort of start, uh, let's put this on there, let's put that on there. It needs this and it needs that. And, and there's some legitimate debate about sort of how 
spare or how sparse the, the the law, the light amphibious warship should be. You know, how much defensive capability should it be? Should it intrinsically have? Is it just going to be a, a truck to cart Marines around? There's some genuine debates that are going on about there out there in the naval inside the building and outside the uh, uh, outside the building and the broader naval community. And those are legitimate debates. And you know, there's but the, people, it's not just the Navy who wants to add things on. GAO will do their report and they'll say it should have this and it should have that. Eventually, the, the Pentagon's uh, Department of Operational Test Evaluation, DOT&E, will weigh in and says, oh, it's not survivable enough. We have to add all this. We have to add all that. And all that will come with money. And if you add stuff, that means more size and more everything. So, it's, I mean, the, the pressures to do it are, are, are kind of nuts when you think about it. Yeah, that is, that is all true. But the one thing I would say in the context of that is that Okay, let's say that $150 million ship becomes a $300 million ship before they're all said and done. That's still not bad. I mean, in the context of the Navy shipbuilding programs, that's still a pretty cheap ship. You know, one of the charts I used to put in all my shipbuilding reports would be this, well, my boss would call it the angry chart, but it was sort of a sand chart of sort of how much money we were spending over time on each major category of ship. And I always included the amount in there for LCS, because LCS consumed a lot of time and a lot of attention and oversight process and, and a lot of public discussion. But the overall amount of money that we were spending on LCSs over the course of a 30-year shipbuilding plan was quite small. The same would be true for laws. Compared to what we would be spending on submarines over the next 30 years, ballistic missile submarines, attack submarines, new attack submarines, you know, laws is honestly just a drop in the bucket, whether it's $150 million or whether it's $300 million a year. A ship, brother. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Eric, thank you very much. Um, th this has been uh, a, a very interesting conversation. I wish we could, uh, you know, double or triple our time. Uh, we've been talking to Eric Labs of the Congressional Budget Office. Uh, I hope you'll come back and uh, chat with us again here in the future. I would love the opportunity if I have the chance. Thank you very much. Now hear this. Now hear this. All right, you know what that means. It's time for Squawk Box. And now Mr. Cavus with some thoughts about the value of good analysis. We've just been hearing from one of the most important observers in Washington on how the U.S. Navy goes about some of its most important business, spending money to buy the ships, aircraft, weapons, and systems it needs to safeguard the nation's security. Eric Labs at the Congressional Budget Office and his compatriot Ron O'Rourke at the Congressional Research Service have well over a half century of experience in watching and analyzing the Navy's ability to forecast, budget for, and deliver its weapons. They have accumulated a wealth of knowledge and expertise that comes, with, comes from having done the job year in and year out. Eric and Ron's influence on Congress and the Navy cannot be overstated, not when there is a constant shuffle and turnover of senators and representatives, committee assignments and parties, not when administrations change at least every four years and at most every eight years. Not when service secretaries, service chiefs, and service budget directors rotate in and out of office. Not when the Pentagon's leadership does the same. And speaking from my side of the equation, reporters, journalists, and editors themselves come and go with widely varying degrees of ability and knowledge. That, of course, is the nature of a democracy and a representative government, and it is well and good. But it also produces a churn where sometimes those driving a conversation either just found out about something that others have been dealing with for years or when a political approach can turn things inside out. It's in those times that the steady analysis coming from CBO and CRS and several other entities becomes ever more important. They're a constant in the constantly rotating personalities of the government. And in this case, 
Eric and Ron are some of the best who have ever had that responsibility. Whether Congress, the Navy, the Pentagon, the administration, or the public heed the information labs in our work provide is, is a different topic. And in an era where it's fashionable to constantly complain about government, it's often overlooked that the labs and overwork service of analysis and support is a part of government that is not only valuable, but it works really well. Well said, Chris. Well, that does it for this week. Next week, we will be in sunny Southern California to attend the AFSIA USNI West Naval Conference in San Diego. If you see us, please stop and say hello. We'll also be producing daily podcasts with special guests from the Navy and industry. The Cavish's podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is one of the largest artificial intelligence and machine learning federal contractors for the U.S. government. HII delivering hard stuff done right. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Maradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. And be sure to follow us at Cavish Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavis. Thanks for listening, and bye-bye. Bye-bye.